they refuse to give up their cultural gods. And they tried to do both at once. And that isn't irrelevant. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. All right, so we are in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17 tonight. It's been a few weeks because of Easter and some scheduling issues. Um, so if you don't remember really what happened last time, we dealt with the prophet Elisha passing away. The prophet Elisha died, and then after that, there was a quick succession of kings just seemed like there was a lot of turnover in the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was sort of falling apart at the seams. And at the end of this, there's a new king in Judah and a new king in Israel. Now, Pekah is the king in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jotham is passing away, and he has a new son, Ahaz, in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where we're at, and uh, we're going to see... Not just the downfall, but the actual end of the northern kingdom is what happens, is what we're dealing with tonight. So it starts out with, In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So what's happening is, Pekah is still king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and now Ahaz is the king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, that's important because that gives us some insight into other books of the Bible as well, because when Ahaz was king in the southern kingdom of Judah, that was also when the prophet Isaiah rose to prominence as well as Micah. So uh, we'll actually touch on a little bit of Isaiah tonight. So that's where we're at in the timeline, and the northern kingdom of Israel is about to get wiped out. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So Ahaz is not a good king. And Judah has had some good kings. The southern kingdom has had some decent kings who worshipped God and had the people in Israel worship God. Ahaz is the exact opposite. He's 
sort of mirroring the northern kingdom and their downfall. In fact, it's so bad it even tells us that Ahaz sacrificed his son in fire um, to a pagan god. So that's how bad things have gotten in the southern kingdom under Ahaz. It says, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So now what's going on is the northern kingdom of Israel has decided to create an alliance with Syria. And they want to take out the southern kingdom of Judah. They want to wage war and capture the southern kingdom. But they failed to do so. They besieged the southern kingdom, meaning they probably surrounded Jerusalem and the capital, trying to cut off food supply and make the southern kingdom weak. But no matter what they did, they couldn't overcome Jerusalem. So at that time, the king... Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelled there to this day. So while they failed to capture Jerusalem and really make any meaningful damage to the southern kingdom, they did capture a city, but they didn't inhabit it. It wasn't a good enough victory, apparently. And so they left the city barren, and the Edomites came in and settled there. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. So after this sieging on Jerusalem, where the northern kingdom and Syria are attacking the southern kingdom, the king of Judah, Ahaz, gets this idea. Says, you know who's badder than Syria? Assyria. They're on the rise. And I need some help. So he reaches out to the king of Assyria to help him with this battle. And what he even says, now in the NIV, it doesn't say the same thing. I mean, it says the same thing, but uses different words. It says, I am your servant and your vassal in the NIV, because they're trying to really explain what's going on. He's really submitting to the authority of Assyria. It's basically saying, if you protect us, will basically become an extension of, of Assyria if you just let me keep my position. That's the deal he's trying to make. So he doesn't go to God. He goes to his pagan worshiping neighbors because Ahaz himself worships the same way. He worships pagan gods. He sacrificed his son to a pagan god. And he's living just like these kings, so he's acting like them. So Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries in the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So then he not only is capitulating to the Assyrians for their help instead of going to God, he's actually taking plunder from the temple and sending it to the king of Assyria. So this is, you get a, an idea of the heart of Ahaz and the wickedness and his, the way he turned his back on God. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. So what they managed to do is 
hurt the kingdom of Syria that was helping the northern kingdom. And they ended up killing the king of Syria and captured the city of Damascus, which is still the same city in Damascus of Syria today. This seems like the plan worked, but in first, I think first or second Chronicles chapter 28, um, you find out really what happens is they use this position and their closeness to the southern kingdom of Judah to actually oppress the kingdom of Judah. So this backfires on them. While it protects them from their immediate threat, in the long run, this makes things worse for the southern kingdom. So now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that the king, all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. So King Ahaz basically goes to thank the, the king of Syria in the city of Damascus that they overtook. And while he's there, he sees an altar to a pagan god, and he loves it. In fact, he sends a priest from the southern kingdom of Judah, brings him and tells him to recreate this in Jerusalem so that he can worship this pagan god in Jerusalem. So when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled blood of his peace offerings on the altar. So he uses this altar for worship, but then he also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. So Ahaz not only brings this pagan altar to the temple and to the temple mount to worship a pagan god, he also chooses to move around the temple furniture that was used for worshiping God and change the way that the layout is done. And the layout is based on the layout of the tabernacle that God directly handed to Moses, which is a picture of what there's a temple in heaven and what it looks like. And so he's actually really messing with God's structure and creating a really nasty sense of worship because he is moving God's architecture and the picture of heaven and changing it. And so he moves the altar to the north side Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle blood. Sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according to the king Ahaz commanded. So not only has Ahaz brought this pagan altar to the temple. He's put it in place of the altar that God designed and gave to Moses uh, and to told Moses where to put it. They've moved the altar that they've been given by God, the, the instructions for, moved it away, 
replaced that spot with this pagan altar. And now King Ahaz is telling the priest all of the sacrifices that the people bring to worship God, you burn it on this pagan altar. And the priest is doing what Ahaz has answered. So he's taking a form of the worship of God that God has commanded them to give, and he's mixing it with the pagan cultures around them. And this is not pleasing to God. But it's, it's also a picture of what has happened in a lot of cases throughout church history. The Roman Catholic Church did this during the Crusades when they would try to bring people into the kingdom when the Roman Catholic Church was the head of state, not just church, but also the governing authority. And they would force people into baptisms or they would kill them. And so instead of dying, a lot of cultures just said, we'll accept whatever, just baptize us. And they would bring their pagan practices in because they weren't really changed in their heart. They just didn't want to die at the hands of the governing authority. And this is kind of what's happening here. This governing authority has changed worship and forced all of the people to follow along. So Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the, from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord and on account of the king of Assyria. So apparently the king of Assyria had some input in how this goes. And now not just the altar, but all of the temple furniture is getting rearranged and moved around. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So, yikes. That's what, that's what we've got going on. Uh, Ahaz completely rearranged the temple. Lots of pagan worship, insight, and stuff brought in. But what we didn't see is during the reign of Ahaz, Isaiah was a prophet. And there was this battle, of course, where the northern kingdom connected to the kingdom of Syria and allied together against the southern kingdom. And Ahaz chose to tie himself to the kingdom of Assyria for protection. And they were protected, and they outlasted this destruction. But in Isaiah chapter 7, you actually get a picture of this in, in prophecy from Isaiah in what was going to happen. So we're going to look at the first 17 verses of Isaiah 7 before we move on. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. So it's just retelling this story. Pekah, uh, the north of, king of the north, and Rezin, the king of Syria, came against Jerusalem, but couldn't win. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Ephraim is just another way of saying Israel or the northern kingdom because Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end 
of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remalia have plotted evil against you. So he's using these, these stubs as an understanding of this represents Syria and the northern kingdom. They've come against you, but they won't, they won't overtake you, is this picture that Isaiah is painting for Ahaz. So he says, let's go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So Isaiah is not only saying, they're not going to overtake you. But I actually am saying to you, within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel, yeah, within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel will no longer be there. He's predicting the end of the northern kingdom. God is going to expel them from the land, which happens. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So Isaiah is saying, ask God. What are you looking for God to do? And Ahaz's response, while he masks it in religious language to make himself sound good, where he says, I won't test the Lord. What he's really saying is, I'm not asking God for anything. Because Ahaz's plan was not to rely on God, but to rely on the kingdom of Assyria. So moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, or I'm sorry, I read that already. Uh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not uh, come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So, this is an interesting prophecy. Now, you've heard some of it before because the virgin birth and Emmanuel, which is in relation to Christ, but there's also a near fulfillment in which we don't know who the woman is, but Isaiah is saying that woman who must have been unmarried, when she bears a son, before he's able to really know good from evil and have conscious understanding, Assyria is going to be wiping you out and or wiping out the northern kingdom. This is what's going to happen. And then it's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus and the virgin birth. But this interesting moment, and you can see the connections throughout the scriptures. 
Now back to 2 Kings in verse 17, we have a new king in Israel. Pekah has passed away. So it says, in the twelfth year of Elah, or in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And, of course, he reigned nine years, but he did what? Evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel before him. So basically, just like all the other kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, he was evil, just not quite as bad as the rest of them. So verse 3, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to so king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So what is going on? Well, the kingdom of Assyria has put pressure on the northern kingdom of Israel. And they've decided, we're going to live with this pressure and we're just going to pay tribute to Assyria for them to keep us safe and to try to leave us alone. But now there's a switch up. Not only is there a new king in the northern kingdom of Israel, there's a new king in Assyria. And so they take this opportunity as there's a political change and things are changing and that's when armies are at their weakest because they haven't established their leadership yet. And so they decide now's the time to make a stand. And so we're not going to pay the tribute that we owe Assyria. Uh, and that gets Hosea thrown into prison. So the king of Israel has been thrown into an Assyrian prison. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. So they circled the city for three years, cutting off their food supply. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the harbor or by the Habor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So after this stand that they took, the kingdom of Assyria circled around Jerusalem for three years, or not Samaria, the northern kingdom for three years, cut off their food supply, and then eventually carried off all of the people into the kingdom of Assyria, kicked them out of the land and assimilated them into the other kingdom. And the northern kingdom just does not exist. They're gone. They've been expelled from the land. Now, just in case you've heard it before, there is this weird conspiracy theory that exists out there about the lost 10 tribes of Israel because of this moment. Um, because the tribes of Israel were kicked out into Assyria and they assimilated into the Assyrian culture um, and they lost basically their lineage and heritage. All of that is pretty true. But because of how evil the northern kingdom was and because there was still some dedicated Jews uh, in the northern kingdom, they just moved out of the northern kingdom and joined the tribe of Judah in the south. And so th that lineage still exists. Um, and then these people who left and, and worshipped the way that the northern kingdom worshipped and sort of assimilated into Assyrian culture, they did sort of a mixed worship of the pagan culture and still trying to hold on to some of the elements of God. And they are, those people are what end up being called the Samaritans in the New Testament. So that's where 
all of that comes from. But there were some who held true to the faith and just moved down from each of the tribes into the southern kingdom, and they remained fully intact. So just so you know. Verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from the hand of, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built themselves high places in all of their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every hill and under every green tree. They burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. So what you're getting is sort of a history lesson on why God has judged them this way and kicked them out. They were afraid of foreign gods. They were afraid of pagan gods. They took on pagan culture. They built altars to pagan gods. They worshipped false gods. They created their own religious system. And after decades and, and multiple generations and kings where God has been gracious and protecting and sending prophets, uh, he finally just hands them over to their own desires. And that leads them to being kicked out of the land. So for they served idols of which the Lord has said to them, you shall not do this thing. Literally one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Don't do this. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, ever, every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by my servants and prophets. He's just reminding them that all of the prophets kept telling them what to do, and they just wouldn't listen. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters. They went after nations who were all around them, concerning whom, they, whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image, two calves, made a wooden image, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through fire, meaning they sacrificed their kids in fire. Practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of the plunderers, until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from the following, uh, from following the Lord, and made them commit a great sin. For the sin of Israel walked in the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. And he had said by all his servants and the prophets, so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. So it's just a little history lesson of from Moses to David and Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom's breaking up, and God giving the northern king, the northern kingdom over to Jeroboam, and asking him to follow him, and 
all that time, all these people did was complain, turn away from God, fear false gods, enter into false worship. Um, and God basically said, for the people in the north who refuse to follow me, you're getting kicked out. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Seravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of, Syria, of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not uh, do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, uh, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So Assyria has basically repopulated the area and they've brought in all of these practices, and God is judging these people who are treating the land horribly. Uh, and they say, in their mindset, in the pagan mindset, they view gods as over specific areas. And they're so, oh, who's the God over this portion of land? We need to appease him. So bring us one of the people who used to live there so that we can figure out how to appease this God. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of high places, which the Samaritans had made. Every nation uh, in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath uh, made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and, and Tartak, and the Sepharites burned their children in fire, and Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of high places and sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So what this is saying is they brought in this priest to show them how to worship God according to the rituals of Israel, and they included that in all of their other worship. So they said, we fear this God, but he's one of many gods, and they continued to serve all of the pagan gods and worship them as well, which God does not appreciate because God, in Isaiah, states he is the only God. There is none before him and none after him. There is none like him. But that's what they did. And it's this practice of trying to do enough to appease God, but not actually worshiping him, right? It's appeasement, not worship. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinance or the law and commandments, which the Lord had commanded on the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to serve them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes and ordinances, the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. In the covenant that I have made for you, you shall not forget. 
nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So the nations feared the Lord, yet they served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did to this day. So continually repeated in this is this reminder that these people, while they had sort of a cursory knowledge or fear, or at least some sort of practice in which they were still following the scriptural rules in the Old Testament and trying to honor God in that way, they refused to give up their cultural gods. And they tried to do both at once. They tried to worship the gods of their culture and of this world, while at the same time trying to be faithful to the Lord God to appease him from his wrath. And we're reminded of that over and over and over again in these chapters as the northern kingdom and those who took over the northern kingdom, the Assyrians and the outsiders who went into it. So even the Gentiles who found fear of God still did the same thing. They tried to worship God or appease him while still following their cultural gods. And that isn't irrelevant. That's very relevant. In today's culture, we might not call it gods, but there certainly is an element of worship, whether it's celebrity or whether it's the new narrative thing that flows through social media, whether it's the sun god and worshiping the environment and climate change um, and trying to appease the sun god by switching to solar and doing all kinds. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of the environment, but there is sort of a mental break in this next generation where they've basically been told they're going to die because the sea levels over the next hundred years might raise an inch. You know, it's interesting to me that we have this culture where we shout out that science is real, meaning believe in, in climate change, which is a real thing. Storms are getting stronger. Um, the globe is warming up. It is happening. It is changing things. Um, but we refuse to acknowledge that also human innovation and technology are real. Um, and we can probably mitigate the disasters of, you know, a quarter of an inch of sea levels rising over the next hundred years through human innovation. But we have even made, there have even been major news organizations who have made websites where you can make climate confessions and pay tribute, almost like the Catholic Church did in the Middle Ages during the Reformation time, where you can sort of pay homage for your sins against the climate. Um, and this is the kind of crazy world where we live in, where we don't call it gods, and we try to create some sort of reason around it, but there is sort of a cult-like, pagan-like worship in our culture and to cultural things or to cultural icons. And there's a type of worship that happens with money, celebrity, elements of cultural narratives instead of just worshiping God. And I think that that's something that it's important for the church to be aware of um, because it's, it's not a new thing. 
It's something that's existed throughout history and trying to mix proper worship with common cultural practices and ideas and mix the two, and God says that's not how it works. Um, but we can talk about that more during our discussion time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this evening and for this topic. Um, you know, I can't help but notice that Elisha passed away, and then things just quickly went spiraled out of, out of control in the northern kingdom. Not that they were really good while there was a good prophet there, because the kings were still evil. But there was a prophet speaking to the people, and speaking truth, and keeping light in the northern kingdom of Israel. God, things are spiraling out of control across the globe today. And we have wicked kings all over the globe looking to profiteer off of war and death and sickness and oppression. God, I pray that you raise up prophets in this world to speak truth and to bring your light to this generation who desperately needs it. And whatever role we can play in that, I ask that you give us wisdom and courage to do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.